I think that what teachers need to first realize is that they're not there to serve the practice. They're there to serve their students. I, I don't think that you are being as effective as you possibly could be as a teacher if you're just trying to get your students to go through the sequence that's on the piece of paper that you were told to teach. That's serving the practice. Instead, look at who you're teaching. Try to understand where they're at. And for, for sure, they're all gonna be at different places. Like you're gonna, no room of 15 people is full of 15 bodies that are the same. But what we can do is see how those 15 people need some of the same things. podcast designed to help you change your mindset and your life. It is time for something new. Join host Dr. Shante Cofield, also known as the Movement Maestro, on a journey to see the bigger picture. Open your eyes. Find your passion and discover how movement unites us all. Let's get it popping. This is Maestro on the Mic. I'm the Maestro and you're about to get maestro Three, two, one. Hey guys, Maestro here, and welcome back to another episode of Maestro on the Mic. So today's guest, she's a huge name in the movement world, in the yoga space, and I'm incredibly honored to have her on. I'm not sure if she needs like the whole big rah-rah introduction because like she's just, she kind of a big deal. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Cecily Milne. I said it right, right? That Thank last part you. there, Milne? Yeah, that's my yeah, Cecily Milne, and I um, am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me, dude. Thank you, and thank you for uh, switching times around. Like you guys, life's been a little bit crazy. We're recording this like mid-corona craziness, and she's been awesome and moved some stuff around for me. So thank you so much. I'm gonna pass the mic right over to you. Who are you? What do you do? (laughs) Um. Well, it's uh, it's it's one of those things I actually have a hard time answering. That's still, a good. That's a good so thing. Who are you? And what do you do? It's a good thing. Because <laughs> uh, I think I do a lot of things. I am someone who uh, started out in the yoga space as a yoga teacher and identified that way for a long time, and then my identity started to shift when I started to really become interested in other forms of movement and uh, try to figure out also why I had sustained some injuries that I had. Um, going on when I was only doing yoga for the many years that that was the case. And when I started to really appreciate and resonate with the things I was learning from other people outside of the yoga community, like strength coaches and Mm -hmm. mobility coaches and dancers, I realized I didn't want to identify just by yoga teacher anymore. Uh And so that's why it's become hard for me to kind of label exactly what it is that I do. But typically, um, I refer to myself as a movement educator and someone who is trying to bridge the gap between yoga and all the other stuff that I think is cool. Yeah, I love it. So, so yeah, that's, that's what I've been dedicating a lot of my time to in the last few years. And, and it has manifested now as yoga detour. And so that's what I, how I describe my classes as it's still very much grounded in the foundations of yoga, and yet it takes on a whole lot of alternate paths at the same time. Can you keep going with that and talk about Yoga Detour? Sure. Yoga Detour 
first started as a 200-hour yoga teacher training program because at that time I didn't know we had any other options. Uh It was like, oh, this is just what we do. We do teacher training programs if you want to teach people anything beyond a regular yoga class. And I ended up running that program for a number of years and eventually got to the point where I realized I didn't really want to be teaching a yoga training in that format. I was really interested and still am really interested in teaching people who are already teachers how to be better teachers. Mm-hmm. I wasn't so much interested in teaching people how to teach. And so, well, like if, if, they, if they had no experience, yeah. you know, like bring totally. them up to that first totally. position. Yeah. So that's when I veered away from the 200-hour model and really started focusing on continuing education and really dove into that in a big way in that we actually hired an educational consultant. If you're listening, it's Michelle Singera. She's amazing. And she helped drag all the information out of my head into the real world in the sense of like getting it on paper and making it into a curriculum and getting the getting all of the pieces that were just jumbled around in my mind. They made sense to me, but she made them make sense to everybody else. Incredible. And so that's what we've now used as our platform to build both online and in-person educational programs for yoga teachers, as well as people who might not be teaching right now, but they're really interested in kind of taking their practice in this alternative direction. And that's who we support. That's what our, that's what our work is for. Um, I was looking at your, I don't know, your bio, I guess you call it on your website. And one of my favorite parts about this is she says, I support others in their desire to be the best at what they do. I welcome the yoga misfits, the inquiring minds, the bullshit detectors. That's like, I was like, oh, that's phenomenal. I would never expect that. <laughs> and that's amazing. Can you tell yeah. me a little bit? Because obviously, like, yoga space is not my space. It's not my background. But this 200-hour yoga teacher training, I don't know, maybe you don't know the answer to this. Why is that the standard? It's a, I don't have the answer to that. It's pretty complex. And it was actually in another podcast that I was listening to the whole history of this. If anyone listens to the Yoga is Dead podcast, um, it's the very last episode they recorded for this previous season where the title of that episode is 200 Hours Killed Yoga. And it's super interesting because there's just so many layers to this conversation and rather than going into all those layers right now, because people can just listen, listen to that episode, I think what's particularly relevant is how, whether we're looking at the 200-hour model or whether we're looking at the way that a class is taught or the postures are, are they're used and the way that the postures are taught, there are all of these quite arbitrary standards mm-hmm. within the yoga community. So whether we're talking about the standard of a 200-hour training or the fact that you always do your right side first in a mm-hmm. sequence. Mm-hmm. It's very arbitrary or like counting to five, counting to five when you're breathing in a pose. Mm-hmm. It's like, why five? Yeah. Why 200 hours? Why right side first? And when we start asking these questions, often we realize that there aren't actually solid answers backing them up other than tradition. Gotcha. And well, that's just the way we've always done it. Gotcha. And so while I can appreciate that with the 200-hour model, the intention, I think, was good in that it was meant to try and create some kind of standard in a community where there weren't any. And it was very hard to measure quality. 
And so they tried to put a, a number on that. But now the number is just a number yeah. and it doesn't actually represent quality. It just represents quantity. Uh, that makes sense. What gave you the courage to start your own? Like this seems like a big deal. Like I, I'm trying to understand in terms of like what that would be for physical therapy. And that sounds like it'd be like, I'm going to start my own certification course in, for physical therapists, which to me, I'm like, that's too much. Like what gave you the, yeah. the balls to do that? Well, I think, again, it comes back to who I'm who I'm working with and who I'm training. And I didn't want to be responsible anymore for being the person to tell someone that they're ready to teach yoga. Gotcha. Because I think that that's a big deal. Yeah. And I think that I, I, I don't really know many schools. There are some, but I don't know many schools that are doing that in a really effective way where they're ta like they're sending people out into the world who are really ready to work with real human beings and and do so in a way that's not going to injure people that makes sense. and that felt to me always like a really big deal like i had to be convinced mm -hmm. by um, a few different people to to start that 200 hour program not only because of the responsibility it carried but also because there's just so many of them right now. Mm -hmm. And and I just didn't know how not to get lost in that sea of options. For sure. People were spoiled for choice. And so now when, when the focus has shifted into a continuing education program, it feels to me a lot more manageable because I'm not giving people my so-called blessing to teach. Mm -hmm. I am just trying to share with them my approach. And I can measure their the way that they adapt my approach in a way that feels a lot more authentic, because because it's um it's a smaller it's a smaller piece you know rather than let's look at all of yoga it's like yeah. well let's just look at this approach, and 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 whether or not you're actually teaching in a way that is reflective of what it's meant to provide. You also have. Um... You do in-person stuff. So one of the things that I love about Cecily is that she does the digital stuff. She does the in-person stuff. Like you're doing it all and then taking the step back and being like, what's needed? What's in, what's actually useful, usable, needed right now? And then filling those gaps, which I love. You also do in-person in things. Can you talk to us about what those look like? Sure. That was also something that had to shift a lot because going from a 200 hour program where we initially had like it was a 10 month course where we met with the same group of people for wow. one weekend a month for 10 months wow. Wow. it actually became 11 months at some at one point wow. and then paring down that curriculum into programs now that we have which are either a weekend two or three days or a five-day program okay. and i find now that when i do those more concentrated intensives or immersions it feels like I'm able to provide people with exactly what they're looking for. There's no filler mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you have to be, I mean, you teach these courses yourself. So, you know, if you only have a weekend with a group of people, you're not going to mess around That's with the true. time that you have with them. So it makes me as the instructor have to be a lot more discerning around what's going to be shared and what we're going to cover in order to have the most lasting impact. Sure. Whereas if I'm just trying to fill out a whole bunch of hours, the sake of saying I have a 200 hour program, I'm not as confident in the quality of the information being shared every single weekend. Like mm -hmm. it's all good, mm -hmm. but not all of it feels as relevant to me as the, the real nitty gritty that I know people are really signing up for. That's so that's why now I teach these shorter courses where the focus is really on trying to provide the best bang for people's bucks. So they don't have to invest quite so much time. 
and still walk away with enough information to really change or impact what it is that they're doing with their classes and their practice. And the, the attendees are primarily or exclusively yoga teachers. Do you get like people from different walks of movement? The movement path? We do. Yeah. I would say that pri- it's primarily yoga people, not all teachers, but mostly teachers. Some people who used to teach who became really disenchanted with the practice mm-hmm. who have kind of found their way back through this alternative approach. And then we'll also get people every so often who are coming to us from other yeah, movement walks of life, whether they're um, personal trainers or whether mm-hmm. they are more invested in like a they're running or they're mm-hmm. rock climbing and they've just been told that what we're sharing is is helpful for that. So they're they're more likely to join in for a workshop rather than a full immersion and um, and get what they can from that then apply it however they want to, to what they're doing in their lives. Yeah, that makes sense. Speaking of this, and you, and, you know, you said rock climbers, people that are in different disciplines. For you, when you, when you first started, excuse me, when you first started, in the beginning of the podcast episode, you said that, <laughs> you know, you were basically doing ex- yoga exclusively. And this is something that I hear come up, and it makes sense for, for every, you know, movement discipline. But could you talk to us a little bit about the mindset of someone who's really like, practicing yoga exclusively and what keeps them from doing and what kept you I guess from doing other things sure yeah I can only really speak from my personal experience but when I've talked about this before other people have said yeah that's exactly how I felt so um, I think it is maybe common and, and and for me where it really started from was feeling like I didn't have a community mm-hmm Mm-hmm. I was uh, at the time when I first started practicing Ashtanga yoga, I was in a university. I was living away from home. My parents had just relocated to the other side of the world. They were oh. living in Australia. I don't have any brothers or sisters, so I didn't have any other like immediate family in the same country. And um, I was really immersed in my studies. So I didn't really have, I mean, I didn't really have a life. <laughs> I was just going to school and, um, and hadn't really found a, a deeper sense of belonging in this city that I was living in. And then when I started going to these yoga classes, it felt like there was this sense of um, community that I wanted to be part of, mm-hmm. almost like an exclusive club yeah. that like, yeah. I was waiting to get access to. Like if I could only do that next pose, someone would finally give me the secret handshake and I would get into the clubhouse, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And that's really the mindset I had where it's like, I don't think I ever got into the clubhouse. And I was practicing for 10 years with that constant mindset of striving to acquire more. Mm -hmm. And I think that those of us who have that mindset of, you know, put your mind to it and you can get anything you want and just kind of having tunnel vision around Mm -hmm. that and not really seeing the bigger picture. That's what it was for me, where I was just like, nope, this is what matters. And Mm -hmm. it's my whole life. Mm -hmm. I became obsessed with it. And I really lost perspective on anything else that was important as far as movement goes, as far as like my relationships went. All of my friends at the time were yoga teachers. I had a hard time dating people who weren't in yoga world because they didn't understand why I was always the studio or why I got up (laughs) early in the morning. You know, it became a very alienating practice but at the time I couldn't see it through that lens at all it was just felt it felt like I was um part of this exclusive club and I wouldn't have had it any other way 
And so I remember at that time, I didn't think any other form of movement was worthy of my time. Mm-hmm. I just was yeah, like, oh, well, sure. I can do this. And why should I do all of other sure. things? And there's there's also a, a bit of a dogmatic view in some circles that you don't need anything else but yoga. Yoga ticks all the boxes. If you're practicing Ashtanga, it's so difficult that you don't, you get so strong, you don't need to have to do anything else. Mm-hmm. But so I, so I told myself that for a long time. And then people who weren't part of that community, like who were still kind of on the outskirts of my life would say things to me half in jest, but also half serious, where they'd say things like, you know, well, if you had to run away from a bear, what would you do? Because I couldn't run. It could hurt to run. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't, I, uh, or like you had to climb a fence. What would you do? Because you can't do it up. Like there was all these things that I just couldn't do, but I didn't care. It didn't yeah. bother me until my body started feeling like crap. And that took a while. So once I got, I'd already been practicing for close to 10 years before things really started to go off the rails. Um, And I think for people who get injured faster, Mm -hmm, it's a mm -hmm. blessing in disguise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. You learn your lesson faster. Yeah. So I really didn't start seeing things like through that multifocal lens uh, until I was in a lot of pain. Up until that point, I was seeing things in quite a in quite a restricted lens that was only able to acknowledge the way that I wanted to see things. Can you talk us through that transition as you started to incorporate other things and do other things? Like, was that scary? I mean, is it the, I feel like you you had mentioned before that there was there was pain, there was injury. So I think that helps mm-hmm. us out. But like you just said like that community and the sense of self is huge. And so to bring in other things, I imagine is not easy. What was that like? No, I mean, have you ever worked with a patient or client where they come to you and they have pain and you help them and then they're back seeing you in another two weeks and it's all, you know, that was me. I was, I was that patient. And it was, I was working with a chiropractor at the time and he was the one to be like, I don't want to keep seeing you every week. Yeah. It, it's like I, I make you feel better and you go and do whatever you're doing and it completely brings you back to where you were before you saw me. And this is going to turn into a vicious, expensive cycle that I don't want to get you stuck in. Mm-hmm. And so eventually I listened to him okay, and, okay. and agreed that I didn't want to be just spending all this money on treatment all the time and started working with a strength coach that he referred me to. And I remember in the first, I'd say the first four to six months of that experience, feeling a lot of confusion, a lot of anger, a lot of resentment For sure. because I was being told things that were complete contradictions to what I had been told mm-hmm. by my yoga teachers. Mm-hmm. And it was showing me how all of the things that I had just assumed were capital T truth, right? Yeah. No questions asked were actually faulty logic and not all that informed and not backed up by science. And all of these really smart people who I had been previously telling myself didn't know anything because they weren't, you know, they didn't get it. They weren't part of my world. Then when I started to actually listen to them and heard what they had to say and applied what they had to say to my body and I started to feel better, Uh then I was like, oh crap, Uh what have I done? Because at that point I was teaching other people. I was teaching people the things that had eventually damaged me, hurt me. And so at that point, it was a, it was a, 
um, backpedal, yeah. <laughs> a vicious, uh-huh. okay. furious backpedal. <laughs> Dude, the, can you keep going with this in terms of the te- That's huge. So one of the things we see, and like I think we're in the same world in terms of teaching, and people I think sometimes are scared to say things because they're scared they're going to be wrong. And they might not be scared they're going to be wrong right now, but they're like, but well, maybe it's going to be wrong later because it's going to change. And that's, that's part of, of life. Can you talk mm-hmm. us through that? Because like you just said, this is incredible. You were teaching people this thing and suddenly you were like, actually, I, I think I found a better way to do that. Could you talk us through that? Yeah, it's going to happen. I mean, yeah. any of us who have ever taught anything are going to end up in a situation where you realize that something you said at some point wasn't actually right huh. or it wasn't as right as you thought it was. So whether we're seeing things in a way where it's like you think that this is the only way to do something and then you realize you could actually do it in a bunch of other ways or whether you realize that you said something that is just flat out wrong, we will end up in these situations and this is what learning as a teacher is about. So we have to be aware that it's not only unavoidable, but it's also what I think makes us human as teachers. And when we can be upfront about this stuff with our students, I think it makes us more relatable. I have gone to my students who I used to work with in the past and said to them, like, forget what I said about softening the glutes and backbends. Just Mm -hmm. forget it. I was misinformed. I thought it was right. I had the best intentions. I would only have given you that information if I was going to help you. I know better now. So try it this way instead. So good. I just got chills listening to that. That's so good. Because it's real. It's so real. And this is it's part of growing and, and evolving and learning more. And that you, I think you hit the nail on the head there so much with this. I was trying to help you. It was never like, oh, I'm going to like, I got to get this person. Like, it was. Exactly. Came from We're the- all doing the best. We're all doing the best with what we have, you know. And so when you when you end up gaining more information, when you start to see things more clearly, when you realize that you've made a mistake or you've been wrong, the, the hardest part can just be owning up to that. But yeah. once you've done it, it's like, let's move on. That's Everyone it. makes mistakes. Moving on. Now we know better. Let's keep moving forward. So good. Can you help me out here? Uh, Ashtanga. I hear it a lot. It comes up a lot. Could you like maybe define that or expl- explain that to me? Um, I don't know if I can define it. But essentially, like Ashtanga, it refers to there being eight limbs of a practice. Okay. Because uh, Ashto is eight okay. in Sanskrit. Okay. Uh, and so the different eight limbs of the practice, only one of those limbs refers to the physical practice of asana. Okay. And that's a very common conversation out there is that why have we gotten so caught up in this physical practice mm. when it's only one eighth oh. of the entire practice? Oh. And... There's a, I mean, we can we can talk all day about that, but I think we can both probably see how in the worlds that we live in and the societies that we work in, people are drawn to physicality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sure. the physical differentiator with Ashtanga is the, I would say, intensity of the postural practice. So the, the positions that mm-hmm. are part of the practice, the way that they are sequenced together, the way that they're supposed to be transitioned from one to the other is quite strenuous. Okay. So it attracts people who want to work hard, who okay. want to sweat a lot, 
who want to be challenged. Gotcha. Whereas other forms of yoga might look different in this, in the intention might be less intense. It might be more supportive, more use of props. There's no props used in Ashtanga. Um, this is all, I mean, what it comes down to is really all of these various different options when it comes to uh, embodying a certain approach to yoga. And in a way, I kind of think about it as a game of broken telephone because okay. the we can think about it as like initially, we don't even know who this, you know, originator was or like this is not my specialty because if you were talking to someone from the you know who specializes in yoga history and philosophy mm-hmm. they'd be able to tell you more about this but if for the purpose of this analogy we just think of it as like initially there was this overarching practice of yoga and it was taught to people in a way that was very individualized so for what you need and where you're at right now I'm going to teach you these postures in this way and for this person for what they need and where they're at right now I'm going to teach them those postures in this way and then those individualized practices became what we now know as these schools of yoga. So someone was given a practice that became Ashtanga. Someone was given a practice that became Iyengar mm-hmm. and etc. There mm-hmm. are others. Mm-hmm. But really what it is is just an approach based on different needs gotcha. and and different abilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what I when I reference like the game of broken telephone is like someone said said the rules or said the message or what the of what the practice was supposed to be for in the first place, and it got passed down to somebody else, and then that person gave it their own spin and passed it down to their students, and then to their students, and then to their students, and now we have what we have today, and it's very hard to know whether what we're actually practicing today or what people are practicing got today it. in Ashtanga in Ashtanga studios actually looks like what it used to be got it got it that makes sense that makes sense would you say that what you do is still yoga i get this question a lot i'm sure you do i'm like here it comes i have to say (laughs) it at some point here it comes (laughs) and i mean part of me is like it depends on the day you ask me cool um because there's certain days where I look at the practice that I maybe that I just do on my own. And when I say that, what I mean is like when I'm alone in my room, I roll out my mat and I do some movement. Is it going to look like a yoga practice? It might look like a yoga practice to some people, mm-hmm. but other people might look at what I'm doing and think it just looks like I'm doing some exercises or I'm doing Pilates mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. they might have a different label for it. So if we're, applying like the external lens to what I'm doing, then I don't think it's possible to say that what I'm doing is exclusively yoga anymore. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I just refer to my internal yeah. lens of how I feel and what I feel I'm using the, the movement for, yes. to me that does resonate with my own understanding of yoga because I've always turned to the practice as a way to connect mindfully to my body. I love it. And that for me is what I'm doing when I step onto my mat. But I also connect in that way when I step under a barbell Mm -hmm. in a squat Mm -hmm. rack. Mm -hmm. So it's hard. It's, it's, it's one of those, it's a tricky territory where it's like, where does it, where does the yoga stop being the yoga or do we carry the yoga into all the things? I don't know. It's one of those, one of those puzzles that I think is very personal. I, I, when you said about the eight arms, I feel like there's a big answer or a big part of the answer there. If like we're just looking at the physicality, then it's like, okay, it's changed, but 
I don't know what those other seven arms are talking about, but like if if intent and, and all these other things and mindfulness and, and connection are so important within like this is what yoga is, it seems like it would it would be easier to have it have more things still be yoga because mm-hmm. it's still hitting all these other arms. It's just yeah, the physicality is different. Okay, it, it looks yeah. a little different. Put a band on it, whatever. Exactly. But, exactly. Wow, this that's that's great. Can you talk to me real quick about the and I I know that. You use different, actually, do you use, incorporate things in your practice, in your teachings, I should say, now, like props and and bands and things? Yes. Okay. Yes. How does that Uh, look like? I try and be as creative as possible. So um, typically when I'm teaching in-person trainings, I'm in yoga studios. And so I'm going to use what they have available. So we're going to use blocks. We're Mm going to use bolsters. We're going to use blankets. We're going to use things in ways, though, that are not conventional. So people might stock up on bolsters for a restorative class. People can, like, drape their legs over them or lie back on them, and it feels nice. I use bolsters. Like, most recently, my use for bolsters has been to give people support under their hips to show them how to basically do, like, imagine doing a back extension where mm-hmm. you have, like, a back extension machine. Mm-hmm. We don't have those, obviously, in yoga studio. Okay, but if I if I pile up some bolsters mm-hmm. and put them underneath your hips, and then I hold your ankles, yep. you can do you can do a back extension, moving from hip flexion, you know, totally. into a little bit more of an extended position, and get it totally. And without that support, you can't get it. Yes. You know, it's not the same. So I'm trying to use props in a way that gives people access to strength and movement that's really easy to find in a gym but not so easy to find in the yoga studio. That makes sense. That makes sense. What are you doing for pulling? Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, (laughs) it is. Um, So pulling, we can bring in some TheraBands and resistance bands, but even so, it's like a TheraBand is only so thick. Yeah, yeah, You can only use it so much. And so um, I love when studios decide to actually install some bars to hang oh, from and that's to a do thing. some chin-ups from. It's a very under-the-radar thing. Oh. If anyone who's listening to this has their own studio and you haven't done this yet and you think you might want to, I encourage you to do it. Because <gasps> even if you can just put one bar that like goes the length of the room, yeah. it can make a huge difference to people's shoulders. Because we just see so many shoulder... I mean, you've probably mm-hmm. seen this in your, in your patients, yeah. right? Like... How much anterior shoulder pain yeah. is there from people not being able to access yeah. their posterior shoulder yeah. because they're not doing any pulling work. It's all pushing work and no one's been taught even how to push properly because they're all pushing from their chests and their, you know, the front side of their body as opposed to the back. Yeah. And so when we start to introduce hanging, when we start to introduce um, being able to do like work on an eccentric chin, it makes a huge difference to people's upper body awareness and strength and mobility. It just, it, it's, it's one of those, I mean, I know it's not really fair to say it's a magic bullet, but it's kind of a magic bullet. I mean, we're designed to, to hang and break you. So yeah, yeah I, I, I love it. I, I love that. I feel like we're getting some like inside scoop here. Like you guys listening, put the pull-up bars in your places. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, like, no, pain? it's not conventional, but it's actually going to help people. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Can we keep going down this line of kind of injury and such, but without fear mongering? So one of the things I'm seeing now in the, the space is that there's like fear mongering going on and like this discussion of like overstretching and like 
pushing too far into positions and like getting your hips are messed up now. What is your approach to, I don't know. I I mean, I feel like you're a great coach and you'd probably be like, Hey, let's just load you more and get you stronger. But like, what's your feeling on all of this and your approach to, to combating this, if you will. I always try and bring it back with people to why they're there in the first place. Mm -hmm. So asking them a question, like if someone comes to me and they say like, oh, I really want to be able to get my leg behind my head. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> and yeah. I would I would have said those things at one point. Yeah, yeah, so I can sure. relate to that person. But I'll say to them, it's like, well, why? Yeah. Is it because you just want to see if your body is capable of making that shape? Or do you think that that shape is supposed to help you in other ways? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, if I make that shape, then it'll mean that I have really open hips. Uh, okay, well, what does okay. that mean? Uh-huh. What what does open hip mean? Well, I, my hips always feel super tight. So mm-hmm. we start to just get down to the the real crux of the issue. It's like, okay, well, you so you don't want your hips to feel tight anymore. Yeah, that's what I want. That's okay. what I'm after. Okay, okay. <laughs> so now I know why you're here. And then if we can keep that as our mutual goal, and my student or my client can trust me to use the tools that are going to make them feel like their hips are no longer tight all the time, then I'm going to bring in all kinds of different elements of movement, whether that's mobility work, whether that's actual loading and using some strength work, some structural balance, they're going to start to notice a shift. So for me, that's where it really stops being about trying to discourage people from doing certain Mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. and instead encourage them to keep chasing what they're after if that if that if that goal is you know something as common you know as we can say is like who doesn't want to have hips that feel better who doesn't want to be able to bend forward and it doesn't hurt their back you know really we're just trying to restore people to their more um functional potential because i think that's what actually gets people wanting to do some kind of movement or activity or yoga practice in the first place. So if I can get them to acknowledge that and then trust the process might look different than what they initially thought it would Mm be, we end up seeing them embrace these alternatives because they experience how these alternatives that aren't just pushing further, stretching deeper, pulling that leg, yanking on that leg behind their head. They start to see things through that, um, through that different perspective where it's not about being able to do a position or do a pose. It's about understanding where your body's at, what influences your body to be able to do what it, what it's doing, what it feels it can't do and how we can start to uh, change that and then get them into a position where they, not a position, I, mean, I don't mean like a pose. Mm-hmm. I just mean get them to a place yeah, where nice. they start to just really feel like they're living in their body in a much more aware way where they're in control of what they're doing how absolutely i'm I'm like i'm gonna keep going with that how can this be applied in a regular class setting i feel like one of the things that people ask me and they're like well how do i have like you know 15 students in my class and like do you have advice to those teachers because they're seeing these students but maybe not having the same amount of interaction. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. yeah, this comes up a lot. And I think that what teachers need to first realize is that 
they're not there to serve the practice. They're there to serve their students. So you're not, I, I don't think that you are being as effective as you possibly could be as a teacher. If you're just trying to get your students to go through the sequence that's on the piece of paper that you were told to teach, that's serving the practice. Instead, look at who you're teaching. Try to understand where they're at. And for, for sure, they're all going to be at different places. Like you're going to, no room of 15 people is full of 15 bodies that are the same. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is see how those 15 people need some of the same things. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't need better shoulder mobility? Yeah, yeah. Who doesn't need to learn how to disassociate their pelvis from their spine a little bit better? Mm-hmm. Whose hips rotate perfectly? So there are these common denominators that we can look at and explore in a way where we apply movements that are at their, at, like in their essence, simple. You know, they're not overly complex. They're not taking people into extreme ranges of motion. They're putting us in positions where it's possible to apply different levels of stimulus, different levels of challenge and load. Okay. So if we think of a position like... Um, uh, a 90-90, you know, like I know, mm-hmm. I know yep. you've done some stuff on the 90-90 and we can see how like 90-90 is a position we're talking like sitting on the ground with one leg in front of you at 90 degrees and then the other leg kind of next to and behind you at 90 degrees where you're sitting more heavy onto one hip. And for a lot of people, that's not an accessible position. Yes. But if we look at 90-90 in and of itself, there's nothing going on there that's overly extreme. If we compare 90-90 to like sitting in Lotus, for example, where you're trying to like really bend your knees to their utmost degree of flexion and rotation, Mm -hmm. right? To Mm -hmm. me, that's extreme. Mm -hmm. So in that 90-90, we have so many different options to level up or level down. Do I want to take people and tip them over onto their elbows to give them a little bit more access to not having to hold themselves up and keep from falling over to make them feel a little bit more steady? Sure. Great. Do I want to challenge people who feel capable to be upright, to take their hands off the floor and put some more tension into it? Do I want to get everyone to apply the effort of really driving down into their front leg to utilize that kind of abduction effort as opposed to just sitting there? So there's all these different ways to modulate what you're doing in a position as opposed to, which I see a lot in yoga just get into the pose and hold there for yeah. five. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And if you can't do the pose, then you're out of luck. Exactly. Literally. <laughs> and it's different than just modifying. Like I'm not talking about modifying here. I'm talking about scaling. Yeah. And I think that I only really learned how to scale and use progressions from being in the strength mm-hmm. world because that's yeah. where everyone who's – that's where people are good at it. Yep. That's where you have to, you have to be good at it. Yeah. Man, I, love, I love seeing these – these influences. Uh, I feel like maybe I'm making this up, but I read the, maybe I'm making it up. The Poliquin <laughs> had a, a, a significant influence on, on you. Did I just make that up? Well, it's, it, you didn't make it up. It's, I've never had direct training through the Poliquin system, but I've worked with people who are really high level Poliquin coaches. Yeah. Okay. So his, his, his approach has definitely trickled down to me in different ways and um 
I would say that that's probably that has been the biggest influence in terms of how I've been taught to approach strength training. Yeah, so good. And I, and I carried that with me into the yoga practice because it just made so much sense. It's so nice to see the blending of all of this. Like I think, you know, the extremes come first for things and it allows us to have our tribes and identify with things. But it's so nice when we start to see the blending and it's like yeah because at the end of the day it's it's, it's we're all doing the same thing and seeing these very similar goals just yeah. kind of having different experiences different routes that we're taking but i exactly. love hearing this I, it's like i think i had a not i think i had catherine uh bruni young on the other day and i was like oh like we're all doing the same shit this is really cool to hear that like we're all embracing each other's stuff and mm-hmm. all better for it Exactly. And we can, when we can stop trying to silo ourselves and, and, you know, insist on being different and doing things that no one else has ever tried before. It's like, no, everyone's (laughs) tried it all before. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Dude, it's so, so true. I'm going to take a big pivot here and then I'll let you go. I know you got classes and stuff, but can you talk to us about the business side of things. It's one of the things that I, I am most, I admire the most about you is this, your business savvy and what you've built and this, it's it's phenomenal. So if you could just talk to us, you know, probably like what is the business that you're you're doing and, and how that got started, that would be amazing. Sure, thank you. Yeah, it's, um, it's one of those things that definitely didn't happen overnight and I've had a lot of help. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that now feels particularly relevant in what I'm observing happening in the yoga and movement space, given what we're going through right now with uh, COVID-19 mm-hmm. and how a lot of people who've only ever really been invested in teaching what they teach and seeing their clients are now being forced into this different world where mm-hmm. they have to figure out how to actually be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I do think there's a big difference. You know, Seth Godin talks about freelance versus entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of yoga teachers have been freelancers in the sense that they have just gone around to a bunch of different studios and taught their classes and been paid for the classes. And that's the end of it. With that being the model, you don't really have to do as much business thinking mm-hmm. as far mm-hmm. as strategizing your career. Yeah. But there's a ceiling there. There's there, you can only you can only do so much in a day. You can only charge so much for what you do in that day. And if something takes you out, like for me, I always thought like if I get if I get injured, if yep. I get sick, my income goes away. Mm-hmm. But I had never thought if the world gets sick and everything <laughs> closes down and I can't teach, I hadn't gone there. But honestly, that's where that's where that's we're where at right now. now. So it's it was important to me from an early an, uh, kind of an early point to figure out how to start scaling the business in a way that would not be fully reliant on me. Yeah. And that I think was the primary motivation so that I could um, have something happening and be like whether I wanted to be um, traveling or whether I wanted to have a family or whether I wanted to just not be hustling 24 seven, that there was still a potential for income. And that's a big, that's why we invested what we did in trying to figure out how to start creating online education, because through the online space, it gives us all kinds of options when it comes to scalability. And so to make that possible, like to give people an idea of like the real business side of it, 
I am basically like the innovator. We took a detour. I have the ideas. I have the the content in my head that ends up being the the meat and potatoes of the courses that we offer. But then in order to structure things and what makes sense and can be repeatable, mm-hmm. we um we being Jen Cardoso and myself <laughs> have systems in place. So Jen is the other side of the coin in the sense that we're for the things that I want to innovate around. She's the one systematizing that and figuring out how to make it um, manageable so that when people sign up for this stuff, it can be executed in a way that's organized and not just a complete cluster. You know what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, then beyond that, like we have, we have a bookkeeper, we have someone who's looking at the finances, who's making sure that we're charging the right amount of money, who is making sure that we're getting to pay ourselves and earn a living at the same time, you know? So there's, there's, there's a lot of checks and balances that are constantly being monitored to make sure that we are on a good trajectory. And I think that for anyone out there who's trying to figure out how to do this, the best thing you can do is start surrounding yourself with really smart people. Even if those really smart people make you feel less smart. Mm-hmm. I like, <laughs> I mean, I love that. Is it Tim Ferriss who has that singer? Like if you're the smartest person in the room, yeah, exactly. you're in the you're wrong, in the wrong room. room. Exactly. You're in the wrong room. And, and same as like the top five people you spend your time around, you know, mm-hmm. you are the average of those people. Sure. So I, I aim high and I try and um, get to the point where I feel not so smart around the people who we bring in to work with Yoga Detour because I know that I want to be able to do the things that I'm really good at, Um, but I know I'm not really good at everything. And so I bring those people in whose specialties complement my own so that together as a team, we can do great things. But if I was, I mean, if I was trying to operate like a lone wolf, which is what I started out trying to do, none of this would have been possible. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. I like that you give people that tangible step of just surrounding yourself with, you know, people that are smarter than you, people that are doing the thing. I think that's huge and, and very, I think that's hopefully for some people less daunting too. Cause it's like, I'm sure Cecily could be like, yeah, you could do this thing first and this thing, this thing. And then people are like, I can't do any of it, but just starting no, off. Yeah. With- I think that's where it started for me. It was just, just being open to the different mm-hmm. people who are coming into my life because oh my I didn't go and find anyone. You know, Jen was a student oh, in the very okay. first 200-hour program that we ran. Huh. I was wondering how you guys met. Me. Yeah, she came to me and she's like, so this is awesome. How can I help you out? Oh, I love it. And it just started with a very small, like, okay, well, let's bring her in in a little, in a little way for now. And then that just grew and grew and grew and grew. And now she's a partner in the company. Oh. And same with Michelle, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. who is our educational architect. She was also a student of mine who just came to my classes here in Toronto, like drop in classes. And then she actually ended up coming to a weekend that I was at that time teaching with Catherine Bruni Young. And Michelle was like, so this is awesome. How are we going to leverage this more? Because more people need what you're doing. And she was like, I didn't even know that that her whole background was in education, specifically geared toward online communities. So I was like, oh, we should probably have coffee. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like these people, same with our bookkeeper, like Penny, um, she was also a member of the first 200 hour class, but I've known her for years because she started coming to my Friday morning class here in Toronto, like, I don't know, close to 10 years ago. We just knew each other. 
And then it's like, oh, you know how to do bookkeeping? Cool. All right. Come on over. <laughs> so it's like, you never know who's in your circle. You never know who's in your class. If you just start talking about what you're looking for, what you want to do, it's I think it can be almost instant when someone's like, oh, I know someone or, That's oh, true. I do that. And it's just like, just be open to that and let it start happening. Man, that is so true and so damn good. That's spot on. That's why I think that's like the best business advice that's been dispensed on this podcast. So, Oh, wow. That's, that's so great. It's so, tan- it's, so, it's so tangible, but also so practical and just like keep going with things. It's not like, oh, I get to this step and then go to this step. And then that's amazing. That's like... That's really, really good. If people want to learn from you, they want to find you, they want to connect with you, they want to hear more of this amazing Canadian accent that keeps coming out just a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> Is there. I love it. How can they do that? Uh, well, a few different ways. Firstly, we have put together a little special offer for your listeners and I'll share that link with you so you can put it in the show notes but essentially we are taking a product that has been in the archives for a little for a little while and I've been dusting it off and improving it and bringing it out of the shadows again and that's called our um, spring six so that is a downloadable resource that I have loaded up with a bunch of content that basically looks at uh, the the things that I get asked about the most by others, teachers, as well as my students. Mm -hmm. And so I've gone into a bunch of detail around what my answers are to those questions using videos, using uh, other forms of content, like writing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Remember writing? (laughs) (laughs) Like, what? 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 I actually wrote some stuff. Oh my goodness. Um, It's a really (laughs) great package of information and it's downloadable to keep. So Amazing. We've got that at like a super discount for your listeners. So I'll give you the link for that. And beyond that, for people who want to learn either online or in person, all of our trainings are on the website at yogadetour.com. And if you're just looking for a little taster of like who I am, what I'm doing and what I'm about, I put all kinds of stuff up on Instagram and I'm at yogadetour on Instagram. So any of those different pathways would be a great start. Uh Amazing. She has all the things there. Her site is just, your site's just sexy. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's just sleek. It feels good to go on there. I'm like, ah, this is a real deal. So, oh, guys, it's, 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 it's done very, very well. So, you guys, consistent branding there because she's a boss. Yogadetour.com. <laughs> I, I, it's really frustrating to me. People have all these different things, and I'm like, nobody can remember that. So, yogadetour.com at yogadetour on Instagram. And she got the spring six coming your way if you want to sick discount on that um that will be in the show notes before i let you go cecily one more thing this is how i wrap up every single show what in terms of words messaging whatever would you like to leave the people with just because it's top of mind right now know that you are worth paying for Damn. Wow. I I like wow. I feel some kind of way about that. That was really good. That was that that's phenomenal. I love it. No, I love it. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Cecily, this yeah, is thank you. This has been really fun. This has been amazing. Thank you for changing your schedule up and just being so accommodating. Thank you for doing what you're doing and leading from the front, leading from leading by example and just making things better. And so I really appreciate it. And thank you very, very much. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. You guys listening, thank you. I know you could have been doing anything and you chose to listen to us. And for that, I am endlessly, endlessly, endlessly grateful. 
If you liked it, you guys know what to do. Give me some stars. If you loved it, subscribe. If you really loved it, share it with someone, right? We're all in this together. All right, officially wrapping it up. Until next time, my friends, Cecily and Maestro. Bye.